Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Remember when you were a kid and you had big ideas and nothing could stand in your way? Today, listen to some young people who will remind you, if you've forgotten what that feels like, including a painter whose portraits have made the cover of Time magazine, and an inventor who, when he was eight years old, made a new kind of hazmat suit. You'll meet the inventors of the toothbrush of the future, and an eight-year-old who, after her Black Lives Matter sign was defaced and stolen, started a lemonade stand to raise money to provide her school district with books about racial diversity. Plus, you'll meet a child who provides art kits for all. There is no such thing as bad art. Art is unique to you and only you. Finally, meet my niece, Arwen, who wants you to know that you can change the world, too. You have a lot of powers in your hand, like me. <laughs> I'm Kyone Wolf. By the time you're done with this episode of Audacious, you'll feel like you can... Dream big! And you can do anything! That's right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Kids see things differently. You remember what that felt like, right? Or maybe you see it with your own kids. Solutions to problems were just one big idea away. What if was an enthusiastic refrain, and expressing yourself meant making art. Learning meant asking all of the questions and reading all of the books. If you're an older kid who's maybe forgotten some of what that drive, that passion, that confidence felt like, all you have to do is keep listening. Because today you're going to meet eight young people who think and act big in this swirling, chaotic, beautiful, beastly world. Including an inventor who made a new kind of hazmat suit when he was eight years old. Another eight-year-old whose lemonade stand raises money to provide our school district with books about racial diversity. You'll meet a 14-year-old whose artwork made the cover of Time magazine after dreaming that God told him to get to work painting. And I'm using host's privilege here, my nine-year-old niece, Arwen, will tell you about her plan to reduce the use of plastics and, well, save the world. To blast off this show, I'm proud to present from Danbury, Connecticut, the amazing Chelsea Fair. Chelsea is an 11-year-old philanthropist, and she's the founder of Chelsea's Charity. That's a nonprofit organization that creates art kits for children in foster care, shelters, and hospitals. She makes them for big kids, too, including veterans, and, as she says, anyone who needs a little extra art in their lives. I asked her how this all got started. Well, truthfully, I saw my parents... I'm doing community service around our community and around our house all the time. And I wanted to help too. But they said, since I wouldn't be able to lift heavy boxes, I couldn't do it yet. And I was like, well, okay, if I can't do it now, if you won't let me into your community service project, I'll just make my own. Because that's the kind of mentality you have at that age. And that, by that point, I was probably four to five. And then a few months later, I literally asked, twice a day for seven years and finally it happened so that's a dream come true but basically 
Um, for my 10th birthday, we instead of asking for presents, I asked for art supplies so we can make our first 40 kits. And the idea of giving art supplies started um, when I was four, the same year I asked about Sarah Chelsea's charity. Um, my grandpa, Papa Joe, passed away, and I was really, really upset. So my grandma told me, why don't you draw a picture of him? So I took out my little Hello Kitty sketch pad, drew a picture of him, and wham, bam, I put it in his pocket at his funeral, and he wakes up in heaven and sees it every day and thinks of us. So art helped me get through that tough time, and I thought everyone else should have that same opportunity to get through tough times and kind of heal and express themselves the same way I did. You could be raising money for anything, anyone, in any way. Why art supplies? What is it about art well, I guess I've always been really passionate about art. It just makes me feel safe. It makes me feel happy. Sometimes when I'm all sad, my sketchbook and my canvas is always there for me and I can paint all the time. It's just something about your first stroke of the brush on your canvas or piece of cardboard, whatever you're using that's so therapeutic. Woo! I, I, I don't know what to say. Art is amazing and helps me be creative in ways that I can't really do with anything else. Now, I know that there are especially adults who are listening to you right now, and they're like, oh, that's cool for her. That's cool for kids. But I'm an adult, and I don't paint because I can't do it perfectly, and so I, I'm not going to really go into art. Do you hear that a lot from adults? And when you hear that, what do you feel? What would you say? Truthfully, when people say that, I feel a little bit annoyed. There's no such thing as bad art. No such thing as bad art. Yeah, sometimes it's okay to say, hey, this isn't my best, but I'll do better next time. There is no such thing as bad art. Art is your own. It's unique. It doesn't have to look like Bob Ross. It doesn't have to look like Leroy Campbell. Art is unique to you and only you. Not your neighbors, not your sisters, not your brothers, not your auntie. No, you. If you got, like... A million dollar donation. And I, I mean, you're on public radio now, and that's a really powerful outlet. And, and listeners to public radio tend to be very generous people. So if someone donated like a million dollars to Chelsea's charity, what are some of the ways that you first think about that you'd use it? I would get an art van and would be like the art Santas, where I drive around to different states and countries and open the door and just set up outside and teach different kids from different backgrounds, from different places, how to express themselves through art and how to be creative and just give our kids to, like say we were heading across the nation, we would hire someone to drive across the country and gave our kids to the kids who live there. I love that. You hopefully have a really, really long life ahead of you, and you are just getting started. And so I wonder, when you imagine yourself as a really old person looking back on your life, how will you know that you did everything you could to lead a good life? Like, how will you gauge a good life when you're older? Just having a good spiritual connection with God. And if I do have kids to see my children being successful and being happy in life and seeing just the little blossoms of success and the blossoms of kindness blooming through the world to be able to walk on the street and see people being kind, then I will know my life is either true success. You know how you are 
Chelsea, like you are your own human being. The the wiring in your brain and your heart and your soul, like that is all yours. At the same time, your family is really supportive. Like your family is cheering you on and is is investing in you. And I wonder when you look at all that is Chelsea and all that you've done so far, how much of that do you think is purely yours? Like you are accountable for that and no one else. And how much of it do you think is because of your family and your friends and maybe a teacher or two who who supported you and said really uplifting things? How What is it? 50, 50, 90, 10? What do you think it is? 0% me, 100% everyone else. Nothing we do here at Chelsea's Charity would be would ever happen without the help from others. So 100% everyone else, 0% me. I, I'm not going to take credit for anything. Everything has been impacted and induced by someone else and someone supporting me and someone helping me. So 100% everyone I know and 0% me. Can't we do like 1% you? Because I mean, like, give yourself some credit. Because when you have like 1% you, then you're accountable for it. You know what I mean? Like when, when you look at people in your life who do great things, they get at least 1%, don't they? True. But at the very same time, I started really getting into art because of my grandma, because she said, why don't you draw a picture for Papa Joe? So if I hadn't, if it hadn't started with that one drawing, that my grandma said I should do, then I probably wouldn't be as invested in art as I am today. And I probably wouldn't have cared much about, so much about everyone else having art if I hadn't liked art myself. So in that case, you're arguing that you may be part of 100% in someone else. So someone is learning about Chelsea's charity and all the cool things you're doing and they start something wonderful and powerful, then maybe you can inhabit their 100% as being an influence on them, yeah? Yes. Chelsea Fair, thank you for talking with me, and thanks for all you do. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Toodles. Okay, now consider the toothbrush. The one you're picturing, you know, sitting in a cup next to the sink in your bathroom with the nylon bristles, that was developed back in 1938. And before that, there were bamboo sticks with boar's hair sticking out. Mmm, boar hair. And going even more way back, like 3000 BC way back, there was the chew stick. That was a thin twig with the ends all frayed. You'd scratch them against your teeth. So we've come a long way. But what might be the future of toothbrush technology? All you got to do is ask Alex Doyle, Lillian Anderson, and Rory Rundquist from Lockwood Elementary in Bothell, Washington. They're all eight years old. Well, Alex told me he's eight and a half. And together they won first place in the National Explorovision Science Project. It was for their design of the toothbrush of the future. The idea is that when the toothbrush is in your mouth, it can test your saliva for viruses like the cold, flu, and, well, COVID-19. And why stop there? It'll also have sensors to check for cavities and then wirelessly alert your dentist so you can make an appointment. I asked them to explain what else it does. 
it helps people uh, who want to go back to school. And the hour base of the toothbrush has a fusion printer which can print braces, retainers, and mouse guards. Outdoors is cleft with a palette. So then um, I had a surgery that was based also on my mouth, and I had to wear a um, chair. And then, because the last day I was supposed to wear it, it broke. So, I really want to add this to you and do the toothbrush. Because this is a prototype, it's an example of something that may actually turn into a real toothbrush someday. When you picture the real thing in your own hands, so you're getting ready for school and you pick up this toothbrush, first of all, because it has so much technology loaded into it, do you imagine it's it's a little bit heavy? So maybe an added bonus to the toothbrush is that while you're checking about your health, you also get really strong muscles? Yeah. We didn't even think of that. I didn't even think of that. But that's a great idea. <laughs> Thanks. So when you picture yourself with this toothbrush in real life, how long do you think it'll take till it can scan and correctly evaluate your cavity situation, your COVID situation? Two seconds. I'm thinking that it could take one minute to like scan your mouth. Then it would take another minute to get down to the body through uh, the sensors and to the computer. Lillian, how long do you think it'll take to... Uh... Maybe 20 seconds, I think. Okay, so anywhere between two seconds to 60 seconds for it to evaluate your cavities, your COVID, your flu. Anything else that I'm missing? Well, in the future, our houses are definitely not going to look like this. Maybe our houses are going to be spaceships. (laughs) Your idea, your development of this toothbrush of the future won first place in the National Explorovision Science Project in the K through three category. How did that feel when you found out you won? I was like, I was like this. My grandma was there, so she got to experience it. I was really happy that I was going to get $5,000 in one year. Wait a minute, you got $5,000? We could win a $10,000 in 20 years, but I'm going to do 5000 in one year and invest it. Each? Yeah. And we also won uh, our very own computer. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, so you have had early in your lives medals, prize money, computers, national recognition. Now you're on Connecticut Public Radio. So, I mean, you're going to have to figure out what to do with all this fame. Yeah. When you think about the rest of your lives, how do you think you'll use this success to bring even more success into your life? Yeah, um, I would inspire other people to do scheme. And um, I would give some of my money to the poor. Then buy gifts for my whole family. Then I would spend the rest. And then you would spend the rest. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. So I know that a lot of kids are listening to this interview right now. And they're thinking, wow, that's amazing. 
can I really do something like this? Like, am I capable of inventing something so important and useful and brilliant? What advice would you have for kids who are maybe thinking like, can I do this? Yes. Yeah, you can definitely do it. Dream big and you can do anything. If you love science, technology, engineering, art, and math, you're definitely going to love STEAM because it includes all of that. So dream big and have fun. That you can do anything if you work as a team. Could you have done this alone? In one word, definitely no. That's two words, Lillian. <laughs> no is one word. <laughs> Well, I know it also wasn't just the three of you. You also had some help, right? Yeah, so yeah. talk talk about the importance of having a mentor in all this. Ms. Danielle and Coach Laura were great mentors. They supported us to like, figure out what AI is, how 3D printing works. Uh, they helped us whenever we got confused or we needed help. How did you like working remotely? It was here. It was fun. It would probably have been funner if we were in person together, but but we still had fun. Do you think you're going to stay friends after this? Yes, of course. Yeah. If we're not friends, then that's weird. <laughs> yeah. What is the future of the toothbrush of the future? Well, we're hoping that people um, might actually design the toothbrush of the future because it will, I bet, be really helpful to people. And maybe they could even make it better because more stuff could be discovered in that time and more people could add. I'm hoping uh, that we can uh, finish it. and Yeah. But first, we would need to find a way to power it. Something rechargeable. Batteries. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that is the challenge. Yeah. And portable. Because you got to go on vacation. You want to bring your toothbrush of the future. And then it'll just be a toothbrush of now. <gasps> well, I've, I've asked everything I planned on. Is there anything I missed? Anything else you want to get off your chest or say about the toothbrush of the future and what it took to make it and how you feel about it? Anything at all? Let me have it. Well... We're proud of our whole team. All right. Well, Alex Doyle, Lillian Anderson, Rory Runquist, thank you so much for telling me all about your toothbrush of the future. Well done. Thank you guys so much. I was so excited to be here. Thank you. When we get back. If someone read the book and then moved away, they could talk about it to some other friend, and if they move away, it could go around the world. The thing that would make me the most happy and, and satisfied that I lived a fulfilling life was just that I was able to help others. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Kids, stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting audacious kids who are showing us adults how children can get stuff done and make the world a better place. 
Later, you'll meet a 14-year-old whose art career took off after he heard a message from God. Plus, find out what my nine-year-old niece thinks we can do to save sea life and ourselves. But first, back in 2014, Ebola, a terrible virus, was making headlines all over the world. It was on its way to killing over 11,000 people in West Africa, including the medical workers who were there to help. Mark Lashinsky is 15 years old now, but he was eight at the time. As he was watching all the footage on the news from where he was in Mawa, New Jersey, he wondered how could all those medical workers in their giant yellow hazmat suits still be getting sick and dying? And that's when I really thought that I had to do something, and I really wanted to help. Um, and it took me actually almost six months to find a solution and do research and create a working prototype of a new suit design uh, for healthcare workers. So tell me about this suit. After all the work you did, you finally figured out how to make this suit that was better than the suits that they were wearing. So describe the suit to me. What made it different? Yeah, of course. So a regular hazmat suit uh, is just simply a protective layer of fabric or film. Uh, and the novel design that I had created was a three-layer system uh, in which there would be a little bulb on the side of the suit, which um, can the user can squeeze it. And then it would inflate air pockets, which would be a back layer of the suit throughout um, the entirety of the fabric. And as the pockets would inflate, there would be a little uh, pouch of disinfecting solution in front of them, such that uh, when the pockets behind inflate, it pushes the solution in front through a third porous layer on the outside of the suit to the outside. So it can trickle down and, and disinfect uh, the, the entire suit. And there are multiple of these little patches all across uh, and all over the suit so that with one bulb, when you squeeze it, you know, every 10, 15 minutes, when you're performing um, work as a healthcare worker, you'd be able to disinfect it. And then afterwards, uh, it could be used a couple of times, but it would eventually be discarded. And, you know, this was really helpful in numerous ways. Not only did it provide greater amounts of disinfection, uh, but it was also helpful to the environment because it was reusable multiple times. Uh, and I, I was really perfecting it for a long period of time, over six months, to make sure that it was the best type of product that I could create to be able to help healthcare workers in the best way that I could. When kids you know, you're eight years old at the time, when kids come up with ideas to solve problems, a lot of times they get messages either overt or otherwise from the people around them saying, oh, you're cute, kid. Like, sweet idea. Okay, a hazmat suit, sure. Were you getting some of those messages or was it something else? Uh, I, I did get those messages. Um, or not messages, but I, I did get that kind of impression from adults and those older than me. Um, but I knew really that if I persevered and I had this idea of wanting to help, you know, healthcare workers, I wanted to help and, and, and give back. And because of that driving motivation that I had, um, I was able to surpass all those, you know, negative thoughts and all those people um, who, you know, suggested to me that, uh, like you said, it's just like a cute little idea. You know, it's a nice thing to think about. But I was actually able to create a working prototype uh, for the invention. I was very proud of that. So what happened with the suit? Yeah, so I'm currently, given the reemergence of um, another epidemic and now pandemic, COVID-19, I'm currently looking for 
suppliers or manufacturers who could uh, mass produce the suit to help healthcare workers on their front lines. And I'm willing to offer, you know, the design and the rights and everything uh, free of charge to any manufacturer who can um, feasibly create this on a mass scale to be able to really fulfill my mission that I had all those years ago, which is to help the healthcare workers and to help and give back to the community of those who are on the front lines, you know, risking their lives. So I'm still actively seeking to implement this uh, in the real world setting, but I do have a working prototype and I'm very excited about being able to really make my impact finally tangible. So you've got this hazmat suit you've developed. You're an avid debater. You're a public speaker. You're a prize laureate of over 20 international science and art competitions. And of course, you're a U.S. patent holder. And you've also gone on to become the founder and global chair of the Lighthouse Initiative, which gets filmmaking equipment and classes to people who otherwise may not have access to that world. You've won 10 prizes at film festivals around the world. And so I want to know, do you ever like chill out? Um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. Uh, whenever there's something that I think could be changed or there's room for improvement on something or there's a better way to, to do something as compared to what the status quo or the standard is, I really, there's nothing holding me back from trying to do the best I can and the most I can uh, to try to change it. I love to do my part uh, to be able to do whatever I can to improve on on things, you know, in, in general, in, in daily activities or uh, overall in life. When you're 85 years old and you look back on your life, how do you think you'll know you did a good job? I think it'll be like this, where I think the thing that would make me the most happy and, and satisfied that I lived a fulfilling life was not something super specific, but just that I was able to help others uh, in any way that I could. And whatever it may be, it's nothing too specific that I would have to pinpoint to be able to say that I lived a fulfilling life when I'm much older. But again, as long as I'm able to, in some way, shape or form, uh, help others to the fullest extent that I'm able to and that I can, uh, then I'd be satisfied and I, I would be happy, you know, towards the end of my life that I was able to do that. Well, Mark Lashinsky, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for all that you do and will do. Thank you so much, too. But one thing's for certain When it comes my time I leave this whole world Oh yeah, oh yeah With a satisfied mind When eight-year-old Josie Gorman's Black Lives Matter sign got painted over in her hometown of Farmington, Connecticut, her family put up a new one. Then when that sign got stolen, Josie decided her community could use a bit of an education. So with some help from her family and neighbors, she started Lemonade for Change. Lemonade for Change provides books about racial diversity to schools and libraries. And I heard that not only is this a big deal in Farmington, but Chelsea and her mom Amanda told me that this is taking off all across the country. 
if someone read the book and then moved away, they could talk about it to some other friend, and if they move away, it could go around the world. Ah, so the knowledge is contagious. Is anyone else in the country doing something like you're doing? Yes. So. <laughs> yes. We have this wonderful neighbor, Chelsea O'Donnell, who helped us put together the lemonade stand. And so she posted all about our Lemonade for Change concept and created a website and created a kit so that other families in other parts of the country could very easily do the same thing. And that worked. (laughs) And we saw other families all over the U.S. uh, start their own Lemonade for Change lemonade stand and start donating Uh, either their own set of books, or we have a curated uh, list of books that we put together as a recommendation for bringing a little bit more diversity into local libraries and schools that wanted to participate. So it was very, very cool to see and quite impressive. This is a lemonade stand. And typically, there's yellow lemonade and pink lemonade. Which one do you like better? I like pink lemonade but the one we made was yellow and it was really good Josie do you have a favorite book in the catalog of books that this lemonade stand supports I have a book called Soul White and Who Skins Different Than Our Family that's one of yours what's it called Soul White Soul White which means star in another language any other favorite stories or books or people Harriet Tubman. Yeah, she's amazing. And I've read Rosa Parks. Did you know that before Rosa Parks was made famous for, you know, staying in her seat in the bus, there were actually quite a few other black women who did the same thing. She just happened to be the most famous, but she was not the first to do that. So there's always something more to learn. And, and it's exciting, too, because when you go to school in Farmington, Someone decides what books you read. Someone decides what what your resources are and what messages are getting into your head. And so you standing up for more thorough uh, education is going to benefit you and everybody around you. And maybe I have a feeling you're going to teach us a lot, too. So thanks. Thank you, Josie Gorman. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. (laughs) After the break. When I gave her my first portrait just the smile on her face made my day you have a lot of powers in your hand like me <laughs> i'm kyone wolf meet two more audacious kids that's right after the break this is audacious i'm kyone wolf Today, audacious kids who are lighting up the world with their ideas, their fundraising, their inventions, and their art. When it comes to art, you're going to want to remember this name, Tyler Gordon. Tyler is a 14-year-old painter based in San Jose, California, whose work has graced the cover of Time magazine. He's received a phone call full of praise and love from none other than Vice President Kamala Harris. And in 2020, he was awarded the Global Child Prodigy Award. Born deaf and living with a stutter, he's also become a powerful advocate for stuttering awareness. He even announced the title of his book, We Can, Portraits of Power, during National Stuttering Awareness Week back in May. But this all starts when he was a wee 10-year-old, sound asleep in his bed. 
He had a dream that God said, you can paint. I asked Tyler when he woke up from that dream, what did he do? So I ran to my mom's room and told her about my dream. And I first said, no, go back to bed since it was three in the morning. Reasonable, <laughs> reasonable from your mom, yeah. Then the next night, I had the exact same dream, except this time God told me that if I didn't use my talent, he would take it away. So I ran to her room crying at five in the morning. When it turned to six o'clock, she gave me one of her smaller canvases, which she paints too. And my first portrait took me exactly 17 minutes. I painted my very first portrait. And who was that portrait? Of my principal, Miss Cord. Now, after you finished that first portrait, what was going through your mind? I, w- I was shocked because to me, the brush was moved by itself, but I was shocked and happy at the same time. So at this point, you're thinking, well, I really have to use this talent because as you said, yes. that God told you in this dream that if you didn't use it, he would take it away. What were your next steps? Like, did you have an idea of the direction you wanted to go with these paintings or the people you wanted? Like, what were you thinking in terms of who else you wanted to use your skill to paint? Right after that, I wanted to paint almost everybody because when I gave her my first portrait, just the smile on her face made my day. And since then, I've always wanted to step keep painting because I just loved it. Will you describe for those who haven't seen your work and we'll put some of your work on our website so people can see this style. Will you talk about shadow painting? How do you describe it to somebody who hasn't seen it or can't see it? My style to paint the light and shadows off people's faces. The colors that I use really depend on where the light and darkness is on their face. So if one area is lighter, then I use like white to peach and stuff. But when they have like a big shadow on their face, then I use like brown to dark brown. You'd mentioned that it felt like when you were painting that first painting, that it was like the brush was moving on its own. I want to hear more about what that feels like. Like, are you in a certain mindset while you're painting that you're not in at any other time? Yes. When I pick up my brush, I like zone out into my own world to where I can't hear anything. I just listen to my music and I just paint. Will you talk about who you've painted? that uh, has has made the news? Because I know there's been quite a few of your works that have brought you closer to some really big names. Some that by painting that you might recognize is the Ron James, Jeffrey Curry, Kevin Durant, Kamala Harris, J-Lo, Janet Jackson, um, Kevin Hart, and just many others. And I understand you got a phone call from one Kamala Harris. Yes. What happened? It was right before Thanksgiving, and she called us out of the blue saying that she was proud of me and of 
my talent, and I was just completely shocked that she even caught in the first place. And yeah, it was just a really fun experience. Which one of your paintings do you look at and like your heart skips a beat? That's a hard one. There's one that I painted of Chadwick Bozeman. It's at least four foot tall. Right after he died, I painted that one and it's like huge and I just really love it. I want to know what it was like when your portrait of LeBron James was on the cover of Time magazine in December of 2020. I mean, I just want to hear how that felt to like see it for the first time, to hold it for the first time. That is an accomplishment that I think a lot of painters would really, really envy. When they chose my painting to be part of the cover, I was just completely shocked that they even chose a kid to do their covers. I was just completely shocked. Who have you not painted yet that you really want to, or that you inevitably will? One painting that I haven't yet, can't paint yet is my mom. Why is that? Because since I started painting off of her, the last painting that I'll ever do will be her. As like a tribute? Yes. Wow. How will you know when that time comes? I do not know just when it feels right. You do live streams of your paintings sometimes. What kind of reactions do you get from people when, you go, when, you, when you're done and you scroll through all the comments? What are you seeing? Oh, I get lots of love. I get lots of, oh my God, you're so good. And just the love that they send me is just incredible. If you went back to yourself as a young, young person, like five years old, and like told that young version of your, younger version of yourself what you would be experiencing, um, what do you think little kid you would think about that? I would not believe it. Not one bit. I wonder how all this press attention has affected you like now you're going to be on public radio's audacious so i hope you're ready for the attention of a thousand sons but i wonder how how has it felt with all these interviews and press and and i know you have a book out which we'll talk about in a second this is just so much for any human being of any age you're 14 how does this feel it feels amazing because all my fans they always stay by me and they're while we're sitting love and support. So this is really great. One of the many cool things about the way that you paint is that it is singularly yours. It's your style. Like I can see a painting of yours that's on a wall among other people's paintings. And I could be like, that's a Tyler Gordon. I know it. And it is so hard to develop such a strong style that anyone can tell it apart like that. So when you picture yourself at like 75 years old, still not having painted your mother's portrait, <laughs> when you try to picture the, the evolution of your style, do you hope it changes? Or do you hope that you, you stay in the realm of this style that you do and just see where it goes? Um, I love the way that I paint and that will never change. But hopefully 
why get to evolve by using more colors, adding a, a little bit more details to it. Your book, We Can, Portraits of Power, is available for pre-order now. It comes out September 28th. Congratulations. Thank you. You revealed the cover of your book during National Stuttering Awareness Week. Why was that important to you? Because since made myself stutter, um, I just felt that it was right to announce if they did not know that why well, I said I as well, but at the same time, release my book. What kind of things do you wish people understood about stuttering that they don't think about or they have the totally wrong idea? That sometimes it's really hard, but you, you really can just learn to love it or learn to master it. Are there any things you wish people would stop doing when you're stuttering? Wish they would not finish my sentences for me because I like to finish them myself. Hey, you don't need any help. You <laughs> just need, just, just chill. <laughs> yeah. When your book becomes a New York Times bestseller, um, what do you hope people get from your book? What do you hope people feel? That they learn to follow their dreams and to not be afraid just to get out there and show the world what they can do. Is there any artist that you would love to paint you? Um, that is a hard question. Um, Really don't know because there's a lot of good artists out there, but my mom she's an artist. Um, the last time that she painted me was when I was like six. So I would really like to see um how far she's come and to finally see things better. You said earlier about how all this really began when you had this dream that God came to you and said, if you don't use these talents, I'm going to take them away. When you think about God, what is God like to you? Like, what's your relationship with that entity like? I love everything about him. Um, but I feel like everything happens for a reason because when I was born deaf, um, somehow I pulled through and when they said that, why, why is it going to make it somehow I pulled through? So I feel like that, 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 uh, me. that was all gone. You also see some of the really unfair stuff that happens in this world. I know there's a lot of trauma and pain and violence and injustice in this world. When you talk to God about all that, what do you feel back? Um, well, 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 I just feel reassurance that everything will be okay. Well, you're making things okay with your work. More than okay, you're doing such great work. Tyler Gordon, thank you so much for talking with me. Congratulations on your book and all that you are about to achieve. That's uh, awesome. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I just wanna paint the picture. I just wanna paint the picture. This final interview is with a brilliant, 
passionate, curious, very funny nine-year-old problem solver living in Madrid, Spain. She's also my niece, Arwen Gladys Perez Salquillo, and she's got something she'd like to fix once and for all. Right now, plastic and water is hurting animals. It's hurting the crabs, tiny fish, big, medium fish, and a lot of times turtles and seals. How is it hurting them? They get trapped by by strings of plastic like around their heads and some of them think that microplastics have food. Wait a minute, microplastics? What's that mean? Okay, if you have a plastic suddenly they start getting smaller and smaller and they go into microplastics. And fishes, when they are breathing their water, the microplastics go inside of them. And that's not good. No. But then the humans start fishing. When the fish comes up, they put it in a supermarket like everyone knows. And then when a person buys it and eats it, it's eating microplastics. But we don't know that we're eating microplastics. We don't know it. We should stop buying plastic. But there's two problems. That first, plastic is very cheap, so persons like to buy it. And eco-friendly is very expensive. Like, a plastic toy is like 30 euros, and the eco-friendly 60 or 100 or something. A lot more. A lot more. Yeah. So people buy more the cheap to not lose a lot of money. It's all about the Benjamin's baby! Okay, so what is the solution to this problem, Arwen? The solution is... We should tax plastic things. Like, if I have a marker or something of plastic and one not eco-friendly... Imagine it was 50 before and the plastic was 30. Plastics could be like 70. <laughs> and people will buy more eco-friendly things because they are cheaper. And with that, maybe companies will stop using so much plastic and start using eco-friendly materials. And that also helps a bit the air because... The factories usually do more about plastic things and they put a lot of smoke. So if we use eco-friendly materials, they would reduce the smoke. What are some eco-friendly alternatives? Ah, bamboo. Bamboo? Yeah, we can make things about bamboo and wood. But it's not very good to cut trees. So it's better the trees that have already fallen to cut them. Because sometimes I see trees that have already been fallen by wind. And why don't they use that that wood? How hopeful are you that we are going to get better at taking care of the planet? 
sometimes I hear in the news they're making an eco-friendly store or something to help things and I get hope. I'm so happy and sometimes I feel super bad because I see when my teacher shows me a, a photograph of a, of a factory, I'm like super sad of seeing all that smoke. and smoke bad. <laughs> I know that a lot of children are listening to you right now and they hear your great idea and they think, can I do anything to help? Do I, as a child, have any power whatsoever? What would you say to those kids listening to you right now? You have a lot of powers in your hand, like me. <laughs> Before I thought that I couldn't do anything. But then I started learning that I was doing each day better things. I used less plastic some days. And the other day, I used less water in the bathtub. And I feel that I'm helping the world. So I think we, we are trying to help a lot. And you would be like superheroes. Even though not a lot of people would know you, but you would be... A private superhero. <laughs> you are my superhero. I love you, Arwen. I love you too, Antikayon! I know you need more brilliance from children in your life, so it's a good thing you've subscribed to the Audacious podcast feed. Because if you look at it right now, you'll see a bonus track just for you. You'll meet two kids who have some life hacks in the culinary world, including how to dunk an Oreo in milk without getting your fingers wet, and you'll hear the plans an eight-year-old has for a machine that'll make anything. Yes, anything. It can make like a hundred million, gajillion gallons of candy. <laughs> and if you haven't subscribed yet, just look us up. As a bonus, you'll always get to hear the show a day early. And thanks for leaving a review. That really helps people find us. If you like this show, you might want to also scroll down that podcast feed and check out episodes featuring an eight-year-old with a stutter and what he hopes you learn from him, and advice from a young girl with Williams Syndrome on ways to live a great life. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>